0: You're tuned into to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by naturalist Prahlad Papper from the Department of Integrative Biology here at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Prahlad. Thank you, Tesla. And uh, so you're in my home department as well, Integrative Biology, but we're a pretty broad department, so... I study mammals, and you do not, right? You study plants. I
1: say trees. Trees,
0: trees yeah. but trees are plants.
1: Trees are plants. Trees are my favorite kind of plant.
0: Okay, why? Do you have Do you have a reason? Well, I'm
1: about, so I'm about six foot six, and I realized at one point that if I wanted to study trees, grasses would be an issue. I was actually really interested in grassland for a while, uh, but I sort of associate more with trees. Uh, trees and I are on the same sort of level.
0: Okay, but what about? I know California has a lot of pygmy forests, for example.
1: Oh, we've got a lot of pygmy forests. We, we do have some pygmy forest, And I like pygmy trees, too. Pygmy trees are actually probably more my height than a, than a normal tree.
0: Okay. But you do have a specific kind of tree you like the best?
1: Oak trees. Well, so I study oak trees, but I would not say that oak trees are my favorite California native trees. So sort of so, so like California buckeye is, is a, a tree I like more than oaks. California madrone, another tree I like more than oaks. So just because I study oaks doesn't mean they're my favorite trees. Well, then why do you study them? Because they're fascinating, they have fascinating sort of evolutionary characteristics. Um, they've been a model sort of. I always try to call them a model organism, but I get sort of shut down by reviewers sometimes when I use that. But to me, they've they've been a model of evolutionary dynamics for a long time in uh, in the study of plant evolution at least.
0: Okay, so let's walk back a little bit. Uh, when did trees evolve?
1: When did trees evolve? This is my. This is a qualifying exam question. Um,
0: <laughs> You're not the first person to tell me that. <laughs> uh,
1: So, so trees have been around on this planet in some form or another uh, for about 400 million years. But the early trees were pretty different than the trees we have today. In fact, early trees were sometimes had were parts of different evolutionary groups than the current trees that live. So, currently, most trees are are seed-bearing trees. um, So they're either conifers or they're flowering plants. Their earliest trees were actually members of groups like lycophytes, which are sort of more early diverging groups. people would look at them today and think that they look more like mosses.
0: So when we say early, we mean pre-dinosaurs.
1: This is well before dinosaurs. Okay.
0: That's really, I think that's, the that's what the audience wants to know. know. Okay. So that's
1: my answer. <laughs> Tree, trees have been around since longer than dinosaurs.
0: And how long have there been oak trees in California? Is that like a new thing or has that been around for a while? Well, again,
1: I guess I guess it depends on what your sort of definition of time is. But uh, oak trees in California have been here for at least 10 or 15 million years. And then trees sort of on the planet as a whole have been here for maybe uh, 50 million years, oak trees have been here for 50 million years. They sort of started out up in at really high latitudes, sort of a, sort of what's called a whole arctic distribution around the North Pole, at a time when the North Pole and, and sort of latitudes around the North Pole were much more temperate than they are today, so this is pre-ice ages. Um, and then as, as sort of, as temperatures got colder in the North Poles, they moved down, moved down, and now we find them sort of at mid-latitudes, you know, between 30 and 40 degrees.
0: And so in, in terms of trees, it's at 50 million actually sounds pretty young because that's on this side of the KPG boundary when the dinosaurs went extinct. That's like when there were mammals everywhere. So fairly young from my understanding.
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, but, but most flowering plants are fairly young. Flowering plants, you know, so I'm just making numbers up here, but I, flowering plants, I think, are maybe 150 million years old. So even though I said that trees are much older, flowering plants, which is what most trees are today, are, are younger than, than those earlier groups.
0: And so let's paint a picture of an oak tree for, because I was, you know, going north from here, you look out, you see a lot of uh, golden grasses, and then these lone, pretty lone trees out there. Um, and those are the oaks, right? Yep. that's
1: the classic California landscape, right? It's sort of, especially at this time of year, we get these senesced grasses, these dead annual grasses, and the hillsides are just dotted with these oak trees. It's it's. In some ways, you ask, like, why why I would study this. That's one of the reasons why I'm interested in studying oaks is because they're aesthetically really beautiful, in my opinion. And I I was raised in Northern California, and to me, that landscape, that sort of those rolling rolling brown hills with dotted little army green oaks is one of my favorite things to see. And ecologists can sort of choose what system they're going to study based on their interests because they're going to be in those places for a long time. They're going to see those places over and over again. And so I think ecologists should be really aware of the choices they make and choose to be in a place that they really enjoy. And so I made a really conscious decision that oak woodlands were a beautiful place. And I love, I love to take lunch in an oak woodland under a big, huge oak tree. And that kind of decision is really important, uh, for me at least, in, in choosing a system to study.
0: I mean, yeah, you got to be happy, right? <laughs>
1: you got to enjoy it. Lunch spots or lunch spots are a big deal for me.
0: That's good to know. And not just because you're six foot six. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then another thing about oaks that maybe people don't realize or don't know is that they produce acorns. Right?
1: They do. That is that is a characteristic of oaks. That might even be a defining characteristic of oaks.
0: Do other trees produce acorns or is it mostly uh, just oaks? Other
1: trees produce things that you might call acorns but a, like sort of a taxonomist might say that they're not even truly acorns. There is a, a tree in California called tan oak which is not in the same genus but is sort of the nearest relative of oaks. And From my from my mind, that's an acorn that it produces, but it actually has a slightly different development than an acorn.
0: And so, when we hear about California Native Americans, for example, using and processing a lot of acorns, that means that oak trees were an important staple in their diet.
1: For sure, oak trees were an important staple in the diet of all humans that lived together with oaks. So, sort of in places like Turkey and uh, the British Isles, everywhere that uh, you know, sort of the whole Mediterranean, everywhere that humans lived. Um, together with oak tree species, they were an important staple for us prior to prior to agriculture. Once agriculture comes in, people sort of turn their backs on oaks um, and we sort of forget those connections that we once had to them.
0: And that's probably because it takes actually quite a bit of processing to consume acorns, right? You can't just go out there and chew on one and and be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can, but...
1: You you can. So, I don't know. I've actually... So there's a story that sort of floats around in Native American communities that there are oak trees that... So what you're talking about is the tannins. They produce these sort of bitter compounds that that acorns have in them that the tree puts in there to prevent herbivory, actually, to prevent the seed from getting eaten up. And there's always these stories that go around about oak trees that are known for not producing any tannins. um, And so that the, the acorns would come off the tree sweet, And I actually found one one time. I found a valley oak up in Mendocino County that I picked acorns off of an eight and they didn't have any bitterness to them at all. So
0: So it wasn't a distinct species, not like all valley oaks. It's just certain trees. Yeah,
1: no, it'd be individual trees. And and it's not clear. Nobody's done this research and maybe I'll be the one to do it in the future. It's not clear whether that's a genetic difference or something about its environment that, that causes it not to sort of load the tannins into the acorns.
0: But it would have been a gold mine for sure, right?
1: Yeah, people would have loved it. Although, you know, in some ways... They might not have been, they might have had other proper properties that weren't as beneficial. So they might have, so they, the Native Americans liked the oaks because they had a high lipid content, um, so high fat content, as well as quite a lot of protein. And it may be that sort of not loading tannins in makes the, the lipids less available or something like that. I don't know. Valley oak acorns in general were not considered high quality by the Native Americans. They produced kind of a mushy oak acorn. Um, actually, tan oak that I mentioned, which is not a true oak, was generally like the considered the choicest oak
0: so you haven 't always been six foot six, so that means you haven 't always compared yourself to a tree That's true. so but have you always been interested in trees or in plants your whole life?
1: No no, definitely not at all um, so i I did my undergraduate work at u c Santa Cruz and I look back on that and I'm kind of disappointed in myself from that time because Santa Cruz is a, is a beautiful place and there's great hiking, great oaks around Santa Cruz. But at the time, I, I wasn't aware of them at all. I didn't pay attention to them. I hardly went hiking um, like two times the whole five years that I lived in Santa Cruz. I was a philosophy major and I really lived in my head during that time, I think.
0: So then your uh, your passion for trees came later. What, what spurred that on?
1: Um, so with a degree in philosophy, there's really not a lot of ways you can go other than sort of continuing in your head and spiraling around. And I sort of did that for, for quite a while after undergrad. Um, and I just realized that I was so, well, I guess the story is that I I got a job, um, doing research, uh, during field research in agriculture and pasture management and realized I really liked, uh, field work a lot. I liked doing field research and setting up experiments in the field. Um, but I wasn't entirely happy with the experiments that we were setting up. I thought they were kind of BS experiments that weren't very well organized, really well designed. And so I wanted to design my own experiments. And the only way to do that is to go to graduate school. That's the only really way you can design your own experiments in the field as a scientist without just sort of, otherwise, you're just going to be working for somebody else and doing their experiments.
0: So when you say field work, because we're talking about plants, people might actually think you mean a field, but that's not what that that term means, right?
1: yeah that's not what that term means, I guess so field work can mean a, a, um, sort of any kind of environment right so when I was a lot of the work I did was actually in vineyards when I was living in Mendocino County before starting grad school and so that wouldn't be a field that would be a vineyard um, but then a lot of the work I did was also sort of rangeland and pasture land management and those would have been literal fields.
0: Okay, okay, so just you know just clarifying for people For too. sure
1: field work is just uh, doing science outside I would say that's how I would think of field work.
0: Yeah. And then, so I do a lot of my work in museums, which isn't technically field work, but it's like not in my home place. And yeah, there's ver- there's versions, but yeah, outside, uh, doing experiments outside, looking at trees, looking at agriculture. And um, was that just like a light bulb? You were like, now I want to do grad school?
1: So as an undergrad, I had intended to go to grad school um, as a philosophy major. And I put it off because undergrad was really painful for me. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge procrastinator, probably like most uh, people. And I told myself that I wouldn't do grad school until I'd sort of beat that habit and learned how to not procrastinate as much. And it it never really happened. Sort of several years went by, about seven years between finishing undergrad and starting uh, grad school. And I never, definitely, definitely never beat the procrastination habit. Um, But at a certain point, I just realized that it wasn't going to happen. And if I wanted to go to grad school I just had to do it, regardless of my my own personal failings.
0: And as we were mentioning, or you know, as we were talking about before the show, you you mentioned to me that there may have been another uh, influence when you were thinking about grad school. You were you were making decisions, right? And and you had some some help from maybe what we would call like the spiritual side of things, right? <laughs>
1: so I definitely consider myself a spiritual person. I think it even carries into the current work I'm doing. Um, A lot of people sort of put this hard line between spirituality and science, and I definitely don't see that. I think that sort of melding those two parts of my personality has to be important to developing who I am. And so I I still consider myself a Buddhist. Um, I've taken the five precepts of Buddhism, and I try to observe them as best I can. And I also think very seriously about sort of the spiritual component of the work I do. Sort of I was talking about this connection that humans have had to oak trees, and that, that includes a spiritual connection in my opinion. So it's sort of an evolutionary connection. It's a biological connection, but it's also a spiritual connection. You probably can't have the one without the other in the way I think about it. Co-evolution creates a spiritual bond between organisms. Um, But that's not the question you were trying to ask me. You were asking about how I got, how I made the decision to enter grad school. Um, It it wasn't an easy decision. And and I knew, because I knew grad school was hard. Everybody tells you grad school is hard. And so, and and I knew that I was okay at academia, but it wasn't really sort of what I was especially good at, especially the science side of academia, which, of course, I didn't have a lot of experience with at the time since my undergrad had been in philosophy. But I had a pretty good sense of what it was, and I knew that it wasn't something that was for me in the long term. But I was really interested in sort of the questions that you could ask in nature. But at the same time, I was interested in Buddhism and I was living in Ukiah in Mendocino County, which is about two hours north of the bay, of the East Bay. And there's a great Buddhist monastery there. It's called the City of 10,000 Buddhists. There's actually two really good Buddhist monasteries in that valley. There's a Thai Buddhist monastery called Abayagiri as well. And I was a- attending both of them and, and taking part in a lot of their activities. At that time, I was also a master gardener. So sort of my interests were pretty broad at the time. And the way I got really involved at the City of 10,000 Buddhas, which is a Chinese Buddhist monastery, a, a, lar- a really large Chinese Buddhist monastery in Yukaya or just outside of Yukaya, um, the way I got involved was through their farm, because they have a large farm. They have something like 10 acres of farmland, and they grow quite a lot of their own food that's, that's eaten by the, the local monks and nuns, and also it's eaten by the students. They have a through K-12 school, as well as they have, a, they have some kind of accredited college, and I, so, of course, I could have gone to that college as well. Um, so but I was working on their farm, I would go basically once a week and we would just, you know, weed, we'd do manual weeding, we'd do watering, we'd start plants in their in their greenhouse. And I was really loving it. It was a, a, a really good experience. I liked the environment at the, at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. The City of 10,000 Buddhas is a very traditional Chinese monastery. In China, monasteries are big complexes, and there's a lot of different people who live at them, not just monks, but there's also a lot of there's chefs, and there's people who grow the food, who work on the farm, who may or may not be monks. And there's they're sort of more integrated into the community than people often think of monasteries as being. And so I really like that, that sort of community that, that was formed at the City of 10,000 Buddhas. And Sort of after I'd been volunteering there for a couple of years, uh, Mr. Fun, who was the head of the farm, um, who had come from Taiwan, had to return to Taiwan for some family business. And it seemed like he wasn't going to be, he wasn't planning on coming back. And it was clear that I had been volunteering there the longest. And I, I probably could have taken over Mr. Fun's job and been sort of the local resident farmer at this Chinese Buddhist monastery. And that was really attractive to me. That was something that seemed like I could really picture myself doing that for the rest of my life. Because that's that's where I was at that point in my life, is I was, I was maybe 27 years old and trying to picture what the rest of my life was going to be. And at the time, sort of I was weighing options between going back to school to study ecology and be a field biologist or be a farmer at a Chinese monastery. And they seemed like equal opportunities to me. I, I couldn't really decide between them. And people ask me how I decided. I don't know how I decided. I just, you just sort of have to like, sort of make a decision sometimes, or maybe you don't even make a decision. Maybe you just sort of let the path of your life follow you. I think maybe if I made a decision, it was that I didn't like Mendocino County as much as I thought I did when I first moved there. It's it's a great place. I do like it in a lot of ways, but I think I wanted to get out of that area a little bit. And so that's just sort of what, what sort of tipped the scales in favor of graduate school, to be honest. Um, it wasn't It wasn't any kind of major realization. It just sort of happened, I guess.
0: So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calix. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I'm joined by naturalist Pallad Popper, who's telling us about his uh, passion for oak trees and his work on oak trees and also his really interesting path to graduate school uh, through a Buddhist monastery and making these sort of decisions about what you want out of life, which is something we all need to think about. And uh, you ended up here at Berkeley. And, of course, we're happy to have you. Uh, so it's not quite a Buddhist monastery, but hopefully you are still finding some, you know, something that you're looking for, and, uh, and you're still studying oak trees.
1: I talk to the oak trees a lot. Like I said, the oak trees have become my spirituality. I, I'm very sort of explicit about melding my spiritual understanding of oaks with my scientific understanding of oaks.
0: And can you give us a little summary of what you study for your research here?
1: Yeah. So, so like I mentioned earlier, oaks can sort of be viewed as a nice model of different evolutionary processes. And one of them is the sort of classic uh, made-up idea of speciation, this idea that, that uh, an evolutionary lineage can become two evolutionary lineages at some point. Um, and that's sort of what creates the tree of life. That's the branching that creates the tree of life and oaks are really well known for messing up some of our ideas about how clean that divergence can be um oaks despite being fairly old i said i said 50 million years old or 15 million years old in california they still haven't fully diverged so uh there's lineages that sort of we can trace their their origin back at least 10 million years and throughout all of that time, through 10 million years, they've maintained the ability to hybridize with one another. So even though they're things we consider to be different species, they still reproduce with one another. And that, that violates a lot of people's assumptions about what species are and the way evolutionary processes work. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in is, is sort of pinning down. Uh, I I shouldn't say pinning down because I don't like that, that sort of puts too much uh, emphasis on what I'm doing to the oak trees. I want the oak trees to tell me a little something about the ways that they're evolving without my assumptions about the way speciation happens impinging too much on the research.
0: And so I actually was just teaching this uh, in the class I'm teaching right now. We're learning about species concepts, so it's a it's you know an intro level class for freshmen, but uh, already we're telling them you know there's different ways to think about species. Not everyone agrees that species exists, but just for the general audience, right? You know we would think of maybe like a horse being one species and a donkey being another, and then we can think about oh well they still make mules, and so it's never as clean as we want, and there's different ways people think about it. Um, it, but,
1: never, it never is. No. Yeah,
0: and but ultimately what we tell them is that it's a human-imposed construct, right, because we want it to be clean. We want there to be categories. It's just easier to talk about. It's easier to think about. But as you said, it's it's not that easy, and especially not with oak trees.
1: That's interesting. I, I, I've never done biology in another university at another campus. But it seems for sure like at UC Berkeley, there's a really strong understanding of how imposed that species idea is. Um, it's almost kind of an in-joke in integrative biology that we're really skeptical of it because it just sort of comes up pretty often, but people laugh it off. Uh, and yet we, still, we, we need to understand it better. There is something real going on. There really are different lineages. They're ecologically different, which is important in my research. And they have a different evolutionary history, and yet they still share things.
0: And can you just spend like a, a minute or two telling us about the methods that you use to study these
1: things? Sure, so I, like I said, I got into grad school, I got into ecology because I was interested in fieldwork. and so I definitely I, I try to still make fieldwork important in my research. Um, I do a lot of field work in the spring, I visit um, About 30 sites that I've set up around uh, California, around the California Floristic Province, I visit each of those two or three times. So I put a lot of miles on my car. I actually don't end up spending very much time at any one of my sites, which is somewhat of a disappointment to me. I sort of envy people who I know in integrative biology and in other departments that spend all of their fieldwork at one site and really get to know that place really well. Instead, I've chosen sort of an opposite path of understanding the whole distribution of a couple different species and visiting many, many sites many times every year. And then in the fall, so in the spring, I visit them a couple times to track their leafing out and their flowering. And then in the fall, I have to go back, and I'm actually visiting right now. Every every weekend, I've been visiting some of my sites, sort of making sweeps through the southern part of the state and sweeps to the northern part of the state to visit my sites and count the acorns that they produce. So that's the fieldwork side of what I do um, which sort of, like I said, is is important to me, and then I do a lot of genetic work as well. So I'm doing uh, genetic sequencing of oaks in order to understand sort of their relationships to each other, both within a site. So at one site, I'll collect about thirty different individuals and try to understand what's the variation within this site, what a lot of people would call a population. So at one location. And then also comparing between one location and another location. What's the variation between these two different locations?
0: So when you say you collect individuals, you're talking about bringing back leaves or branches? Yeah, I don't
1: bring back whole trees. (laughs) Yeah, no Um, space for that. I do... I do bring back quite a lot of leaf material. So you, you need hardly any leaf material at all to, to do genetics. Sort of a, a square centimeter of leaf would be enough to get the DNA that I need. But I'm also interested in sort of the pattern of variation in their morphology, and the shapes of the leaves and in the shapes of the acorns. And so I collect a good amount of plant material so that I have uh, the ability to analyze them in that way as well.
0: And is there a lot of variation in the way they look?
1: There's a huge amount of variation. So that's another way that oaks have been a model is that They're very well known for having uh, a lot of variation and being difficult to identify because of how much variation they have. So sort of leaf morphology, the oaks that I study have lobed leaves, so sort of a classic um, oak leaf shape with wavy edges. And the variation in how much lobing there is is pretty widespread, both, like I said, within a site as well as between sites. It does seem that there is some variation that's associated with a location, so sort of like the idea of uh, local local evolution, there's variation that can be associated with a place and that you would identify with that place. You could look at a leaf if you're good enough and say, oh, this leaf came from the southern Sierra foothills or this leaf came from the northern coast ranges.
0: And that's because of like local precipitation and uh, sunlight and just local factors in the environment.
1: So this is exactly what I'm studying is what is that because of? And, and some of it is definitely these local environmental conditions, sort of both experienced by the plant during its lifetime, as well as experienced by that lineage living in that place for who knows how long, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years, a single lineage has been living in a single place in California. So that that leads to local evolution. I've been told not to call it local adaptation because the shape of a leaf is not related directly to its fitness, but we can call it local evolution for sure. But then the other influence on it, which is also evolution, is how it interacts with other species in its sort of local neighborhood, in its local regional neighborhood. And that also creates some variation that you can identify to a place. So in the North Coast ranges, California blue oak, which is one of the species I study, overlaps in its distribution with the Oregon white oak. And they hybridize with one another. And that that hybridization, that sharing of genes, creates some characters that you can identify as well.
0: So you mentioned that you're, you know... You're not trying to do anything to the oaks, but you're trying to find out what they can tell you. So do you have any, what What have they told you so far?
1: Well, I've found some interesting patterns for sure. One, which many people have found, is that there is a huge amount of genetic variation, both within sites as well as between sites. And in fact, most of the variation is within a site. So trees that are growing right next to each other can be really genetically different from one another, even though... They've, like I said, perhaps been there together. Their lineages have been there together for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years at the very least. So that that's one pattern, this high degree of variation. And it's it's really cool to see. And it, it connects to a lot of ideas about the evolution of these oaks. And then the other pattern, which is obviously related to that, is that trees that are really far apart from each other, say a blue oak um, at the southern end of the central Valley down in the Tehachapis and a blue at the northern end of the central Valley up by Redding, separated by 800 kilometers, they can actually be genetically quite similar to each other. And that's a, that was the most startling thing I found. Um, When I found it, I sort of knew that my dissertation was going to be interesting because there's a lot you can pull apart in an unexpected pattern like that. The expected pattern is that as things get further and further apart, they will be less and less genetically similar to each other. And that's true in animals, but it should be especially true in something like trees that obviously don't move. They spend their entire life in one place. The only times that they do move are when they produce pollen, their pollen moves. And when they produce acorns, their acorns can move. And that's the only time that this sort of mixing can happen that allows populations that are really far apart to be similar to each other.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. I know I'm going I'm going to have to think about this a little uh, a little longer. We could definitely do a whole hour on oaks it seems like, but we are actually coming to the end of the program, so I should uh, definitely ask you, you know, you have a very I won't say non-traditional, but you have a a different path to research into grad school than a lot of people. So do you have recommendations for students who maybe didn't get a science degree in college or who haven't thought about science but are now trying to break into this field?
1: One thing I'll say for sure is that don't do it for money. There's not a lot of money in most science. Um, Even the sciences that have a reputation for having easy jobs, the money's not really there. If you're looking for money, get a different degree. A science degree is not what you want. Do it for passion. Find something that you're really, really interested in and follow it out. Think deeply about the subject and think about how it connects to other subjects. That's at least that's the path I've taken and I've found it pretty interesting.
0: No, that's great advice. And what about for just the general public who's interested now? They've heard you speak and they're like, man, I'm going to go out and look at some oak trees. uh, And you have any advice for them?
1: So we're really lucky in Northern California. Northern California, I often think of it as sort of an epicenter of public involvement in biology and ecology. For at least the past 20 or 30 years, there's been tons of opportunities throughout the Bay Area and throughout the North Bay and throughout all of Northern California for anybody who's interested to go out and learn natural history of some of these plants. I myself have been involved in leading some of these hikes, um, leading workshops, giving lectures. And there's tons of groups. There's groups all over the Bay Area and the North Bay that Make, this, make these opportunities possible. Places like Point Reyes have options. They, they produce a catalog and they leave, lead hikes. They lead kayaking tours. They have talks.
0: Yeah, but yeah. So, okay, so going out and, you know, just that, as you said, this is sort of an epicenter. So there are people who are, you know, leading workshops and talks and ways that the public can learn more about these things in a less formal setting, for example.
1: For sure. I, the classrooms are not the way to learn about these things. Go out and look at Oaks in person. And, yeah, there's definitely lots of opportunities. Uh, these are the opportunities I want to follow up on after I get my Ph.D. I think that we're only going to make that sort of movement in the Bay Area stronger.
0: And sort of as the last, uh, you know, the last question for the show is is always, Do you have? is there anything you really want to say to the audience about your field or about your science or, you know, anything that this is the platform to do it, you know, outside of a research journal? What do you want to say?
1: I'll come back to this idea that I've, I've sort of mentioned a couple times of sort of bridging the, the gap that we perceive between spirituality and science. That gap is just as imaginary as the gap between two species. And we do better science and we do better spirituality as well by understanding that these things are both parts of our personality. And they're, they're both tools that we can use to understand the world around us in very different ways. And if we only choose one of them or only choose the other, then we're only understanding the world in half of its uh, diversity. And we should, we should really be aiming to do both and integrate them as much as possible. They are difficult to integrate. There are differences between science and spirituality, but they complement each other really well.
0: And obviously, um, you know, you're an evolutionary ecologist, so being spiritual doesn't have to have any implications for your, you know I don't want to use the word belief in evolution, but your acknowledgement of scientific fact that is evolution.
1: Yeah. If anything, it only makes it more textured. I think I understand evolution in a deeper way by understanding its limits and its impetus that are scientific and not spiritual. So often people who ignore sort of spiritual and religious sides of things try to create scientific explanations for things that they feel. And maybe the things we feel have spiritual explanations and the scientific explanations should be for things we observe in the world around us.
0: Well, that's good advice uh well that's i think that's it for us here on the graduates but uh it's been excellent talking to you Prahlad. and uh yeah if you if you just tuned in. You missed the whole show. You're going to have to hear it online. <laughs> but I've been speaking to Prahlad Popper here on uh, KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. This is the graduates interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work. And Prahlad's been telling us all about his path from philosophy uh, through a monastery into ecology and studying oak trees here in California and um, how you can actually uh, meld these two concepts together and maybe how you should meld these two concepts together, especially if you want to think about things like what is a species and, uh, you know, what are these lineages and how does evolution work, right? Uh, But we've learned a lot about oaks and a lot about you, and it's been great having you here on the show.
1: Thanks, Tesla. It's been great being here.
0: Yeah, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.